Wave pool technology is progressing at a rapid rate, and commercially surfable wave pools are opening around the world. Welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. My name is Nick Robinson, and through my guests, we take a detailed look at this fascinating new game. Check us out on wavepoolmag.com. For your curiosity and stuff. Good day, Nick Robinson here again for another episode of the Wave Pool Mag podcast. So today we've got Greg Weber from all the way from Australia. Actually, he's currently in Thailand right now enjoying himself. And uh, we chatted on a Sunday night and, and he's a fascinating guy because he's essentially one of the you know, uh, initial members of the Wave Pool Club because he's been designing and thinking about wave pools for years. Obviously, he's got a flourishing surfboard design business. We just don't don't touch on that at all, and we we really dig deep into his wave pool designs, his uh, tussle with Kelly Slater, and uh, various other massive topics for about forty five minutes. So it's a fascinating insight into Greg Weber's world of wave pools. Greg, welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast, and thanks so much for joining us. And you're all the way over in in Thailand right now, correct? Indeed. Yep. So what's going on in Thailand? Um, you surf. Female and no waves. Mm-hmm. That's what men can do. <laughs> well, I got a female here in Portugal, but no waves because I'm on the southern coast of Portugal. So all the west, you know, all the Atlantic swells hit the west coast, and we're right down in the south in the Algarve. So don't don't often get in winter. We get a few swells, but um, yeah, looking to create a wave pool here so I can just surf all day long. Well, yeah, I mean, it's understandable, isn't it? If you if you love the girl or you think there's the potential that it could be a, a good thing, you shouldn't be going, oh, I've got to make sure that there's some waves within, you know, 30 minutes or an, an hour away. Um, and I'm, I've surfed a, a million waves, you know, not really, but, you know, I've surfed since I was 10 and I'm just about to turn 60 next month. So... You know, you can shift your priorities a little bit, I think. Sure. So where were you surfing when you were 10? Our first surfs were, I think, was Corumban, as far as my brothers and I can remember, at um, Elephant Rock. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Just south of Corumban. And, yeah, our father bought us some cool lights. And other than running over a few people, like Dead Square, you know, when people have never surfed uh, or swum before in, in ocean waves and they put their back to the wave one of us i can't remember which one but i've got a feeling it was mont ran straight into the back of a head of a german <laughs> swimmer i don't know oh, why gosh. it was important that he was german but <laughs> the, the sound of <laughs> of the impact was a really dull thud of um you know flesh like a bit of skin and hair over a skull and a and a cool light you know it's just the funniest sound i went <laughs> Jesus, we're off to a crap start here. And he didn't get too angry because we're like midgets and um, said something in German. And that's probably our first surf. So, yeah. And Kulats were those, from, those that, polystyrene boards, right? Yeah, it wasn't a Firestone, you know, big chunky one. It was more like a Kentucky Fried or something like that. So they were bought from a chemist. Don't you love that? You can buy a fucking yeah. surfboard from a chemist. You know, I, know, I remember no, we used to do that in South Africa as well. Same story. Yeah, there's no image. No one cares. It's it's something that you can paddle onto a wave and ride in. And if you you know got a bit of skill, you can stand up if you're small enough. Yeah. Anyway, so that was probably the start of it. And then Bondi, you know, was the main uh, surfing zone for decades, really. And was it pretty popular down there? Was it pretty packed with people in those days? Same, you know, ten thousand people on the beach and 
lots of people surfing. Certainly a division between the north and the south with the hardboards on the south and um, cool lights or you know anything soft on the north end. But I tell you one really quick thing to save you even asking: Did you have any really weird, any special moments <laughs> at Bondi? <laughs> Other than the the last tube I ever had there that I thought was thirteen no ten seconds long, and Will corrected me. Brother Will connect, corrected me uh, once when I mentioned ten seconds. He says, "Oh, it's probably seven. <laughs> You're exaggerating." But the special moment was going paddling, riding a fiberglass board, being called a trog, which is you know in the vernacular for the time which is now, you know, a kook um, because I wasn't standing up and doing turns. So some guy who was a local said, you know, F off your trog. And I thought, fuck you. I'm just learning. I'm a, I'm a kid. And I was probably 13. And you know what I did? Maybe not that day, but the next day, went back, got the cool lights that we were riding and took, paddled out at the south end or just on the edge of the, the boundary. So there's an invisible boundary. Yes, there's a flag, but you can imagine a dotted line basically going out to see as far as the waves are breaking. And I paddled out from the south end 10 metres, you know, in the wrong, in, in the hardboard zone and paddled across this line and felt an amazing sense of freedom that there was no one, no one to stop me and there was no control. And I went into this and I paddled into this little right-hand rip bank and there was a fin in the cool light as well, so it wasn't fully sliding and, and, and you know difficult to ride, and rode the most beautiful little two to three foot bowls to myself. And so I remember thinking, in a way, it doesn't matter what the equipment is sometimes, if you get to have the fun and the release and the and the relaxed aspect of it, it offsets for not having the most amazing board. So yeah, that was one of the big moments in my life. Is that when you felt that, wow, this is something that you can do forever for your whole life? That was before. So I did do a, a one turn, and that, w- that was on the fiberglass board, and I got, I got grip from that. And so I realized, my God, these things are incredible because you can't get grip from a four-inch thick coolite with a big fin in it. But what I got was the other side of what surfing is, which is not the actual performance bit. It's just the other experiences. It's the fun and the freedom and no one around and no one bothering you and even if the board's not great. So it showed me the two completely opposing sides, you know, to what surfing can be. The full performance. So that whole feeling Yeah, that whole feeling of, of having no one around and, and just enjoying nature out on a wave. Did you um did you do any surf trips um early on in, yeah, in your that, teens? That was a part of our makeup. Uh, as kids we were given a lot of freedom uh, by both parents. And by that, we were allowed to climb the cliffs of South Head and even North Head. I don't know if we were allowed to do that, if, if the parents knew. But we'd climb the cliffs and go into bomb shelters. And some of it was quite dangerous. You know, as an adult, I look back and think about the uh, drop-offs that we had. And one of our friends died when a rope broke and he fell 90 feet to one ledge and then the remaining 270 feet to his death so you know i'm not exaggerating it to make a big story out of it but that was the nature of our our um not upbringing but almost the absence of of the control both parents said look just concentrate they never said be careful or watch out and i gave that to my sons as well just concentrate you're doing something that may or may not be dangerous so as a result of all of this adventure that we had we found Nilsson Park initially, which is, you know, well known enough by most of the people in the eastern suburbs, most of the surfers, 
and occasionally gets waves when the, the swells are right direction. But then we went to South Head, and that was really quite a lovely experience because no one really surfed it. Two or three f friends from Cranbrook School were the only guys that we knew that would bother with it. Not a great wave, but you could have your little barbecue and hang there and go for two or three surfs in the day and feel like that it was your own place and you were away from everyone. So yeah, that, that was a part of our nature and ended up taking us to Lord Howe Island as well for the same reason. So yeah, we competed and did all the normal things, but we also adored the separation from people. And then when was the first sort of international trip over to probably to Thailand or Indonesia or Philippines or something, right? Yeah, or for surfing. Yeah, for surfing, yeah. 70s, but I can't remember when exactly. It's meant to go to Bali in 75 or 76, and the price of the ticket went up, had the passport, got the inoculation, and never went, and I've regretted that. Don't regret many things, but I think it was 75, would have gone to Bali. and But not long after that, late 70s. And so that was the start of it, and not Hawaii quite a bit after that. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it must be amazing having Bali in, um, on your doorstep, really. I mean, I don't know, how far away is it? Huh? Yeah, not far. Maybe it's a six-hour flight or something like that. It's, it could even be less. But my other brothers have all surfed their way more. I've probably had five trips. In 88, I got malaria, so I haven't been back since then from Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. Do you get a lot of repercussions from the malaria? No. I mean, I had it for six months undiagnosed because I had a trip between Zimbabwe and being in Australia, which was Hawaii. So when the, question, the key question was asked, you know, where have you been traveling? I'd say Hawaii. And like an idiot, well, maybe I just didn't know. I should have said, well, prior to that, I was in, uh, you know, one of the more eastern islands in the cha in Indonesian chain and then that would have triggered something but I had it for six months and to the point that I was um, infested as the doctor said <laughs> he took the took the um, he observed under the microscope the number of um, parasites ad adhered to all of the platelets and he said mate you, you're lucky to be here so um that's not a good term to hear from a doctor oh, it was horrifying and it put me off going back to Bali or anywhere where there's malaria but look I'm in in Thailand now and there are mosquitoes and malaria does exist so you know you just i eventually just had to get a thicker skin and not worry about it and hope for the best well i know what you feel like because i had malaria in africa because i used to be a game ranger in, in the eastern transvaal in south africa so it wasn't the best three days of my life i was realizing wow you could actually die from this and it's yeah and it's not fun huh it's the worst ever but funny you mentioned the south africa side to it because the doctor that was the first one that had the faintest idea or actually diagnosed it was south african in, in Avalon, and he, and he felt my gut and pressed in, and he said, your liver is huge. I think you've got malaria. Go straight to the hospital. <laughs> How's that? Yeah, well, I suppose the South African doctors live with it, so that's the thing. You know, we have a lot of, yeah. And they were vague. They, the guys here just were looking at um, viruses and things like that. Anyway, that, that, that sort of put me off the adventure style of things. Okay, cool. But when I was a kid, I was always dreaming and drawing of waves, you know, drawing waves in my school books and dreaming of the perfect wave created by a machine when did you first realize that a machine could actually make a surfable wave um i had an idea that it was possible anyway being a fairly inventive kind of person but i didn't think of the method too much i knew that it was not a hard thing to make a swell in some way but i always thought that there was an inefficiency going to there would be an inefficiency with scaling up that would make it prohibitive um and I guess the big, the biggest trigger was when my brother Daniel and I found 
a video from a United a US um, university which showed a step wave forming in a flume, which is just a body of water that moves in a in a tank, in an elongated tank. So you get the water running like a river. You got glass either side, and the the pumps are making sure that there's you know constant velocity. And there okay, was it's not circular, right? This is a river. Not at all. Yes, it's just some some thing that we saw in. And that's the first patent we ever did. It must have been early '80s, I think. It could have been sometime in the '80s. We patented our first design, and so that was the first time that we thought about the mechanics of it. And and also, very early on, we realised that you're not going to find investment unless you can patent a thing. So then you have to understand what is a patent, and no one knows. <laughs> Seriously, virtually no one understands how patents function. They're, they're, you know, two different types. I won't talk about them now. The fundamental one that gives you the biggest protection uh, re requires you to define certain characteristics in a really clear way that give novelty and um, a, a degree of inventiveness. They call it inventive step. And then on top of that, you've got to have some commercial viability attached to all that. In other words, it's got to do something. So that's where I get pigeonholed like we talked about earlier as just a creative designer. That's not true at all because without understanding some of the most complex um, sets of principles legally in relation to objects that are not even you know built or or, or turned into a business yet that's not that's not the same part of the brain the creative off on the tangent stuff is almost useless if you don't know how to apply it to something and turn it into something that's protectable because you can't get the investment. So, you know, that's why it doesn't offend me when people just uh, pigeonhole me like that, because there'll be a day where <laughs> there'll be a comment and they say, this guy's a fucking good businessman, and we didn't even pick that at all to begin with. Mm -hmm. So is that when you is, um, you obviously realized this and started Weber surfboards and Weber waveboards? When was that, like in the mid-2000s, huh? Uh, no, early 2000s, huh? Yeah, well, the companies, you know, have happened, you know, over a period of probably 10 years, you know, I mean, it, running the businesses are, are quite simple. I've got a great accountant. I've known him for a long time, so there's nothing too complex. I have a rough idea about how everything runs. Yeah, basically, that's a, that's a stab at taking these ideas and, and turning them into some commercial value, right? So that's been going on for like, what, 15, 15 years. And is there a story to, to how you started that company and suddenly realized, okay, cool, you know, we'll take it from idea stage to commercial viability stage. Yeah, the um, the patenting. You've got to be able to have it be defendable. So people, as I said, don't understand patents. And it, they talk about, oh, if you change it by a certain percentage, you've got around it. That's a design patent. That's when you're protecting an actual physical thing, like a fin, you know, or, a, or any object, really, where you're trying to block people from copying, copying it exactly. But the other one is the one which is far more complex, is about how the thing functions and what it does. And that takes a type of um, legal ease or, you know, use of language, which is, is not easy in itself, but you've got to understand what the distinctions are between what you've designed and anything else that's remotely similar to it over the last decades, and ba basically forever. You go into the background and if someone's patented something or publicly exp um, exposed something that is similar, that's called prior art. And on one or multiple levels, you'll not get that patent through. And then you've got to adjust it and adapt to it, which is what Kelly had to do when his patents were similar to mine. Nothing bad about it, 
he was patenting a system that was just a little bit too similar and they his patent attorneys obviously had to get around that and work out as we did with earlier patents that were brought up to our attention by the examiners so it, it it's a it's kind of a game that gets played and you've got to look at the prior out and you've got to look at what you've got and in the end you start narrowing things you you, you want a broad set of protections but then that makes it harder for you to get the actual patent so you you're continually narrowing and until the patent until the examiner says okay we're we're happy with this but if you narrow so much and you come down to something that's pretty much useless then you you've got nothing to turn into to use in terms of making a business so that's a balancing act getting the patent and, and not narrowing too much Okay, and what kind of um, systems did you start off with and, and what have you got now? Because you've got, I mean, I've looked on your website and you've got V-reefs and V-walls and a circular wave uh, system. So which are the main products that you're going with right now? Well, the loop linear for the wave pool is probably the best version. We did have a circular one on the grounds that on one hand it will be um, an infinitely long ride, which obviously is not commercially that viable because you want you don't want someone to be on there for half an hour. Um, you, you you wave, yeah, you're just not going to have a business. You're never going to be able to charge, you know, the money that would turn it into a viable thing. So we had that as the starting novelty aspect of it. And you could also make two waves that would break at the same time. And then we had a chat to one of the guys from uh, one of the... Is it Ocean, Ocean Sports Development? Not them. Not those guys at that stage. Chris Warhurst from, it's like Macquarie Leisure or something like that who ended up being involved with the development of the wave pool in Penrith. And he said, oh, so can you, uh, like real quick statement, this guy's a, um, a, a bodyboarder as well, so he's really excited about our circular wave pool design, but said, any chance you can actually put the beach on the outside? And the whole design was with an island in the middle, like Kelly had to begin with. And then I said to him, almost like a lie, I said, yeah, yeah, no problem, I'll come up with a few designs. <laughs> End of the meeting, I'm going... What the fuck? That changes everything. Of, of, so I came up with a, a part circular one, then I came up with a, a, a series of part circular ones where, that were curving outwards, not inwards. So his main rationale and, and argument was that you need the food and beverage to be accessible to whoever's walking around and you know being a spectator or being a parent of a child that's about to have you know have a little surf. You can't ha have it isolated in a central island with you know three or four bridges and and a, and, and a moat effectively between the the people that are actively participating and the spectators or the or the friends or the the parents so that was a, a fundamental you know change that we had to make commercially um and that involved in turning it into a linear pool that's fascinating because I always thought it was the the the, the reason Kelly and uh, ditched the circular wave thing was because of, of trying to eliminate the backwash and that was actually interfering with the wave. But it's interesting to say that it was a more of a commercial uh, movement. Yeah, they, he would have had the same um, message at some point. In other words, people are mystified by the idea of a, a, an unending ride, and it gets you onto mainstream television because it, it it's. It's one thing to copy nature, okay? Then you, what you get is the argument that, oh, it's never going to be as good as nature. Okay, fucking, we'll see about that, won't we? And at the moment, you know, there's some amazing waves and there's some shortcomings to those waves as well. 
But um, now I've forgotten my point. <laughs> We're not going to change it too much. Okay, but it's cool. But do you, do you feel that a, um, a commercial wave pool, a Weber commercial wave pool is, is imminent? Yeah, well, there's the guys in the States that you mentioned before, Ocean Sports Developments, they have three projects at different stages of um, development. And they one of, one of them could start in, in January. That's the earliest. I pressured the guy there, Anthony Brown. We've chatted a million times, and he's about as positive and confident as I am about our design. And they're building pools in fully developed urban areas. So that's where it's taken a long time. But their earliest month of starting to build is is January next year. So we're not far, you know, and that'll that'll change everything because I'm I'm kind of sick of the talk, you know, and yet I've got to do it. I'm not saying, you know, that this podcast is irritating because it gives me a chance to, you know, reiterate the fact that, that we're confident that we're going to do incredibly well and, and totally eclipse everyone else. I wouldn't say it. I'm not going to be hanging around at the end when, when we make a soft, you know, average tube that can't be changed and can't be altered. I've continued to come up with other um, IP, other, other patents and designs to make sure that we pretty much smash everyone else that's out there. I don't, I don't enjoy just being on, on par with anyone. Sure, but there's this one. It's um, the next potential park is is possibly in Orlando, Florida, right? Because they've mentioned something on their website, I think. Yeah, that that's close. And the other one that might just be a tiny bit uh, quicker than that would be the Myrtle Beach one, just west of Myrtle Beach. So they're not sure which one's going to be faster. And it, the developments are complex. They relate to counties and other bodies that are. Um, a part of the project and also the televising of it so it's it's intertwined and in a business sense it's not like you know just build the thing and open the gates and charge people money it's so much more complex than that as kelly would know as wave garden would know as american waves machines would know there's so many hoops to jump through so many things that are difficult anyway absolutely and i've heard um, rumors of a potential wave garden cove in uh, in myrtle beach is that right have you heard about that as i well? don't know about that one let me just think because okay. I, I hear so much about the rivals i've got over 50 shareholders and th there's always one or two that will go they're building another fucking pool <laughs> we haven't done our one yet <laughs> it's like shit and i just go yeah good on them it's making the industry even more believable um but yeah i haven't i haven't heard i may have and i've forgotten Okay, it's crazy. I mean, there's just so many projects under development as well. And, and we've got a really cool little surf planner on our website on wavepoolmag.com where you can just check out exactly what's going on around the world. Yeah, it's which great. Is, I've already had a look. Yeah, it's, it's good what you're doing and it's, it's going to make what you're doing even more valuable because the growth is, I wouldn't say it's exponential, but it's, um, it's linear and it's going up at a rate of, you know, a couple a year maybe. And then that'll turn into four or five a year, new ones. But yeah, it's good. Yeah, I was chatting to um, I was chatting to Sean Young from Wave Garden, and he was saying we we were thinking about how many there would be around, how many wave pools would be around by twenty twenty five, and reckon probably about forty in in uh, in operation, which is quite an exciting. Yeah, twenty twenty five. You said. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just think. Yeah, that's not a bad figure. I mean, there's a discussion that comes to me a fair a fair bit because of the fact that I've made these claims and other people have supported my claims in the business world that we have the best technology. Now, I don't want to harp on this as though I'm advertising myself, but if one 
technology uh, eclipses the others in, 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 in a range of criteria that you know some don't even know about yet, like customizing, like being able to alter the way the wave breaks while it's breaking. I mean, I, I don't even want to talk about the differences. And so I think that will be what determines how many get built. And my, my guess is that will be many, many more than that because there'll be scores being built all at the same time once the, the ultimate wave pool is built that is commercially viable, that makes a better tube than anyone else has ever ridden. So the best surfers in the world are going to come out of those tubes going, what the fuck, that thing was off the charts. Now, being mechanical is one thing, but if you can't get into the back of the tube like you get at a really good point break, then you're missing one of the best things in surfing, which is dealing with that bit of whitewash coming back up, the little whitewash ball at the back, and being a metre or two behind the curtain. What every other uh, wave pool is making now is a conical tube. It's cone-shaped, and that's because it's a soliton, and it doesn't have any reverse current, and it doesn't have a trough. So all of these things that I know from making thousands of waves, you know, some in the lab and, and, and many in the lab and many in the river, then only require being scaled up. And when you're scaling up from something that's one metre, it's not like there's no big grey area. You know that you've made something that at two meters will will be off the charts, so I think that will be the key determinant in in how many pools get built, and also whether there is a link to the the um, twenty four Olympics. So between now and then, if we can build two or three pools and have them eclipse the um, the rivals, then that's a start. The second thing, just sorry to keep going on a point as I'm back on my little high horse. It's designing a much simpler, smaller footprint, cheaper to build system that will actually grow the sport as well. So what we've got now might be a $30 million pool, which you can then put another 20 on for the land and you know whatever property is built around it, and that's, that's nothing really. You can't build ho big hotels for $20 million. Um, that's, that, they're they're the, the flagship thing. They're the ones that you have the World Championship events and, and even the Olympics. But the, the bread and butter pool, we've got that in, incorporated at the end pools, but I've developed a new system that in combination with current control system would make a much, much cheaper, smaller footprint pool. And so I think that dropping it below $10 million and getting closer to $8 million, Aussie, and having a really high wave rate and still really fun and being able to teach beginners, that's, that's where I think you'll see a, a, a significant growth. So what's eight million Aussie dollars in uh, US dollars? About? Five and a half. That's five and a half. Because I mean, then it really are. Oh, that opens it up massively, doesn't it? Because then you can, then you can try and see that wave pools then can become as prevalent as football stadiums. And it's it's I mean obviously cheaper than building a football stadium, but it would be nice if a wave pool could be wave pool could be built. The customer gets charged between five and seven dollars per ride. So it's affordable and they can consider coming back every week or two weeks, but also that you don't have to depend on all of the additional revenue streams, which add to your startup cost. So you've got a $30 million pool and maybe $50 million worth of buildings and land purchases. Unbelievable. What I would, That's why the, the little pool that actually makes really good waves and, and a really good beginner's wave, not, not just a closeout, you've got to teach people how to, to ride. Then you're creating... You're creating a new customer in that area, and so that's a, 
it's especially you know it's a focused design approach to working out you know, to what degree you're teaching people and to what degree you're providing a piping you know four foot little peak and how are you creating waves are you just are, are you using the kelly slater sled wave garden lagoon sled um to drive drive a wave through or are you using um like american wave machine style or are you using paddles like wave garden cove or how, how are you working that the loop linear and this, the design that we've had for years is based on creating a kelvin wake which is basically the back of a what you see at the back of a boat and so if anyone's in the back of a boat and, and most people in, in, in the ocean areas, in the coastal areas, have you know been on a, everything from a runabout to a ferry to you know a, a, a large uh, passenger vessel. So they all make different types of wakes. And so what it means is that you, with that technique, by putting a dent in the wave, you're creating a trough immediately. You're starting by doing that. None of the other guys do that, and that's the trouble. They they have a, a, a shortcoming in the fact that there is no water moving towards the wave when the wave is breaking. In the ocean, there's a wave before, it drags the water off the shelf or off the bank, and then before the next wave comes, that water wants to go back out to sea again, and that's where you have the draw and the suck. Now, the degree to which that happens is obviously something you've got to control because you don't want to have it, you know, a chopu-like wave for a beginner or even for an intermediate surfer. But if you've got that to start up with and then you add to that, control of the water flow so that it's you're settling the wave quickly for wave rate but you're also using different angles and different velocities of water in the opposite direction to the wave then you've you've created a top end wave that doesn't even exist in nature you don't have point breaks with the current running in the opposite direction to the waves it's always running with the waves so that's what we're going to be able to make and that's why i'm supremely confident that the first sights, you know, the first visions that come out will get everyone to go, oh, okay, I think that's the end of it. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll be exciting to see. But you know what I'm really curious about is is what's happening at Triggs Beach and, and your reefs and your and your walls. Yeah, so well, uh, yeah. What is going down there at Triggs Beach? Is, is something being created at this stage? Well, what we have to do first is get more data from the uni. So Griffith University in, in southeast Queensland approached me to to work on that and to do some modeling and so we got a grant already to start the computer modeling and so we have a student working um, to actually test how the waves are going to reflect and how they're going to break and then how that's going to influence the sediment will there be an accretion behind it or a build-up and so they're super interested because one you're making good waves and there's obviously a crowding in, in, in a problem with surf aggression in, in the Goldie. So you're making more waves and, and at, at a moderate price. Number two, you're making a safe swimming zone because you're blocking the wave. You're wedging it and going sideways. So everything in the lee is tiny. So you can actually put flags right there behind those things. And then you're creating a little bit of a sandbank. And you're thirdly protecting that coastal zone from strong erosion. Now, the arguments I had in one thread... I don't know what thread it was. Was it Swellnet or was it the more nasty one? What's the more nasty one? What, beach grit? Yes, yes, that. Um, and I love those guys. Go for it. You're all fucking idiots. You don't know shit. Anyway, <laughs> seriously, none of them know anything about anything. They've just got opinions and they're grumpy and they're not happy with their lives. And I could have a 100 of them in a video conference one day 
and they'd all be embarrassed in it. Not to the degree that Jordan Peterson can, um, you know, diminish someone's credibility, you know, carefully and in a moderate. But I was reading an article about I was reading an article about those guys by Nick Carroll, who's like, I mean, yeah. do you know Nick Carroll? Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, uh, we're uh, good, good and, mate. And he was. Have you read his new sarcasm? Uh, comment it was from 2010 I think he was just talking about the rise of of these kind of podcasts like Beach Grit and everything not podcasts but websites but anyway it's a whole that's a whole nother issue um, I just wanted to ask you yeah about the reef what's the environmental impact of a, of a reef do you know at this stage well that's what's being assessed now and yeah back to the thread thing and, and being criticized this will answer your question as well is that there was a question as to whether these things could actually be stable in the um, the more wild seas that that can occur, and so the the non-experts were saying, "Mate, that thing's going to get ripped off its moorings." Well, I hadn't actually worked out how I was going to keep it to the the seabed. I had some ideas, but I wanted to get it um, public so that the I could get some idea of what the surfing world thought about the actual wave making aspect. Only, do you think? I mean, I know it's going to work. I've tested things at a small scale, and they will make wedge waves. And I wanted to hear what the the um, the attitude was. The only trouble was that you only really get it's polarized. You get wow, cool, nothing better than getting some more waves. Good on you, Greg. Thumbs up from a moderate, you know, positive person. And then you must be dreaming, mate. You're a fucking moron from the other side. So it didn't didn't teach me much, but I wanted to get it out there. Since then, I've worked out a way of letting uh, the the entire structure so don't forget it's it's semi-submersible partly buoyant so three quarters of of the actual structure is below water level but not touching the seabed now the idea was that it was going to be anchored sufficiently strongly so that you could actually offer some protection in the case of large swirls now the degree to which that's possible is questionable you get a 10 meter swirl nothing's going to hold it so that, that argument some people had was correct. And so then I worked out that we will have to actually sink it to the bottom. Now, originally I was saying to protect the actual infrastructure, the, the thing itself, you go out to sea and you sink it because there are pumps on the inside. That's the whole idea of controlling the buoyancy. And you sink it down to the seabed where it's not in a position where it's going to get ripped off the anchor and be some logistical nightmare trying to get it taken off the beach. And you close it up as well, right? Yeah, you can close the sides, and but then you're not achieving anything in the actual... Um, you're definitely winning by making it less um, experience as well less, by getting the, the sides to be parallel, but then you, you're missing out on such a big thing. Can you actually block a chunk of swell when it gets big? So then I worked out how to modify the bottom of the unit so that these huge plates that run the length of each of the arms bed into the seabed. So you do sink it on purpose but right where they are, possibly a little bit further out, but right where they are is fine, even if waves break out further. And the other thing is you turn them, then you open the arms up to uh, plus 90 degrees. <clears throat> so you're getting a diagonal, but slightly out to sea uh, reflection angle. So the waves will actually go diagonal to the to coastline, but out to sea to some small degree, if you're plus 90 degrees. Now, these plates at the bottom, so I've tested it, I've had a 3D model made, and I also talked to the head of the department that was uh, organising the uh, the student at Griffith Uni for, to do the uh, the CFD, the Computational Fluid Dynamics Assessment. And I asked this lady, 
obviously highly intelligent. She's a professor, expert in the field of hydrodynamics and um, sediment movements. And I showed her the model. I said, if this thing is at full scale, and then I used my hands in, in a V shape and said, and it's bedded in. Oh, no, that's right. I had the model this time. And it's bedded into the sand. And I added up the, the tonnage of sand that you've got to move. It's a 1,000 tonnes of wet sand. And all you've got is wave action being reflected one wave at a time with a period of 10 or 15 seconds. So, and she shook her head and said, I don't like making commitments to anything without the study being done, but I can't see thing, that thing moving at all. Now, that's great. So now they can can be lodged into the seabed to later to be um, re, refloated later. But there's a method for that I'll, t I'll talk about another time. But that leads to the question of, um, because I saw a video of you earlier saying how, how cheap they are to build, what is the real biggest hurdle in the way of creating hundreds of, the, of these things? Because essentially, it'd be amazing. You just, as you said, you're creating so many more surf spots, so many more surfable waves. So what's holding it back? It's, it's already happening. I've been approached by a broad range of people, some to invest in the actual development of the idea, and also some to look at methods of uh, funding individual V, v walls so and also from a state member for newcastle and uh you know there's a there's a need in a number of locations in australia at least where the erosion of the coastline is significant enough now so that's why this this change to make sure that the thing stays put is so valuable and so that's a part of the patent now so because it's without getting to the patent thing too in too complex a way the fundamentals were patented originally. You get a prior to get the um, the date, uh, the original date of the application, and then after that, you've got a year to actually define completely and utterly what it is that you're wanting to protect, and that's done with diagrams as well as uh, language. So th that's when you get your claims. So since that first release on uh, Swellnet and then Beach Grit, it's been modified to to a level that now puts a much greater focus on the beach protection aspect. And so, yeah, I think, look, I don't know how fast it's going to happen. It would be probably, they're going to be made out of steel with, you know, the capacity to change the angle. That's a, that's a significant, you know, big size electric motor. It's got to have power within it. And you've got pumps in each of the arms. So you're getting over a million dollars per unit. But back just quickly, you were talking about, you know, what's going to make it happen. It's developers. Developers looking at the the increase in, in the value of property when you have 10 or 20 of them. And even if they're $2 million each, it's still nothing compared to a multi-billion dollar development of 1,000 or 2,000 properties. But there's the permitting process, which might be a little bit more difficult, wouldn't it? Um, like off the coast of California, I would imagine that would be really tricky. But like you were saying uh, earlier in places like Thailand or other areas, it might be a whole lot easier to produce something like Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Indonesia as well. And yeah, look, that, that may get one built, you know, I've got some good mates and contacts in the building world in Indonesia, so we're, we're talking already about that. So yeah, you're right, it could be easier to build a, a prototype um, that doesn't even have the hinging capacity, just prove the wave making aspect. But just need a little bit more science, so we're doing that at the uni, and that's going to be presented to some potential investors in the next week or two, actually. So. The interest has been really solid. Excellent. Yeah, it's an exciting project. When would you install a V-reef as opposed to a V-wall? 
Um, is it just yeah, options? Good question. Uh, it's a monster. It's a big trucker. You know, probably 500 meters long so that no swell can really make it um, pitch from nose to tail or from bow to stern. So it, they need to be quite long. And so it's hugely expensive. But again, Sea Cities, the group at Griffith Uni, see man going out into the ocean as a part of our uh, sort of social and urban development future. So they look at that and go, look, that's a, that's an amazing, it's a big thing, but you could dock all manner of vessels in the lee of that thing. And you could have mechanically perfect waves either side because your gradient is engineered and you can have shark nets on the outside of it. You can have cafes out there. You could even have a small hotel out there. It's a big animal. And people have talked about floating cities for decades, but you, you've got to create some attractions. You've got to, it doesn't just want to be a, a chunk of concrete and the novelty of being out there. There's no way that's going to do as well as something that has perfect waves peeling by, even if it's, you know, four foot, three foot, two foot. You could be riding mouths and bodyboards and people will be having fun. So I think that'll happen after the V walls establish the influence that making waves um, has on, on uh, property values. So money will money will gear it and steer it. Absolutely. And property values with floating cities will hopefully decrease because there's a lot of talk about floating cities right now, I think, and uh, they seem to be gaining momentum. I know people have been talking about them for a long time, but there definitely are some improvements in that area. Yeah, yeah, it should happen. Yeah. Um, okay, so just to just to wrap this whole segment off, like how tough is it in the wave pool business? Like what's, you know, what's been your biggest challenges? I think um, one of them would have to be having Kelly as a rival because yeah. there, there's been virtually no interest from any of the major clothing companies since the very start. So in 15 years, not one email from one um, of the directors of any of the majors who obviously will gain hugely if surfing you know, enters into these gigantic markets in, in China and India, for example, let alone the middle states you know, of America. So not one of them, I, I can't say for sure that that's the key influence, but I know some guys quite well and you know, they get boards from me regularly and they're, they're hyper wealthy. They can't get their heads around investing in Greg Weber's wave pool while Kelly is a mate as well. And I think that has probably been the hardest thing. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter if it's a bunch of engineers. I mean, look, is Rip Curl, Quicksilver, Billabong, or any of the other, you know, multinationals that are involved in surfing, have they gone and put money into to Wave Garden or American Wave Machines? None of them have. I think they're scared of actually funding something that ends up being a white elephant. Because when you've got a brand and you've got massive brand value that's taken decades to create, you could really muck it up. Look what those threads can do. The, the negative people in those threads are stifling it. Now, I think that's what they want. Some of them want that. But they don't understand that there'll actually be an oversupply of waves at one time. That's what, that's what my aim is. Make the wave pools. But as the numbers increase, you create more waves on the coastlines that have got closeouts than 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 we've ever imagined and all you got to do is just make a few more and if, if developers are trying to create a draw card and the draw card costs a million or two million dollars yet you've just created a whole new surf break it's 
it's economically viable and you're going to get people competing. Developers are going to come up with an estate on that, that section of beach and they're going to put in 10 or 20 of those things to blow away the other guys. So an oversupply of waves will be the greatest draw card for any of these developments. And so then the property owners will obviously pay more because the waves are never crowded. But then there's a, there'll be a kickback with, like you said, with those keyboard warriors who are commenting and the hardcore surfers who've been surfing since the 90s or even before. They just want to preserve the surf culture, don't they? And they don't want it to proliferate like football. Well, that's bad luck for them because surfing is too important for the whole planet. A shift in attitude happens when you ride good waves. Everyone's happier. You get one little barrel or you do one closeout ranch or if you're good enough, you pop a little air and it's unquestionable. Everyone knows that it's a, that it's it's a vital thing and it, and it makes you feel great. And ignoring the camaraderie, ignoring surfing in natural, beautiful environments, just the act of surfing is is healthy in in the the great. It stops you from being as commercialized, uh, sorry, as materialistic. So all of these things that they will be resenting and rejecting about growing surfing will be offset by the fact that more people will be having fun in the most simple and great way. So I, I, I think you can't be greedy and go, I, look, in, in actual fact, though, I think there'll be more exploration out to sea than we can possibly imagine. There are islands. I don't want to build on People don't want to build on them. But there's, you know, thousands of islands with waves. Not easy, easy not as easy to get at. But once you create the the landing strips for seaplanes, you'll be able to explore vast stretches of, of, you know, the Pacific and Atlantic. So it'll get bigger. Surfing will be huge. And yes, it'll be sad in one way. I, I still don't like that aspect that you're talking about, that it doesn't have... But look, what's his name? Tom Blank, that legend, surfing with Duke in 1924 at, not Makaha, at um, Waikiki, at Castle Surf, you know? Do you think he was pissed off in 1970 when John Severson made Pacific Vibrations and, you know, what did he Yeah, surfing's changed immeasurably since then. Morning the Earth, 1970, glorifying surfing. We could talk about the rape of barley. Fuck, so what? A, a million tubes have been had there by hundreds of thousands of surfers and some of the best times of their life have been had surfing. So the bitterness... We'll just have to, you know, people will just have to deal with it. It's changing whether they like it or not. It's happening. Huh? Yeah, and that's, that's the thing that you've got to realise. Back to Tom Blake, do you think he'd be bitter? No way. He would look at those surfers on the new, you know, short, manoeuvrable boards and marvel at the turns that are being done. You know, they're getting to places on a wave that, you know, they've never been before. And that is probably the best thing about surfing. There is exploration still to be done, you know, on the wave face and, and you know, out to sea or on the beach or in a wave pool. Just, you know, many more waves has got to be a good thing. Awesome. Well, Greg, I think it's been, it's been amazing chatting to you and, and thanks so much for, for sharing your views on the Wave Pool Mag podcast because it's, it's you know, you've been in this thing a long time and it's, it's really exciting to, to hear your views. Thanks so much. No, my pleasure. It's been good. Wow, there's so much that we covered in this um, podcast. And you can I've actually extrapolated quite a lot into the show notes. So if you go back to www.wavepoolmag.com forward slash podcast, and you'll be able to find the show notes 
for this episode because there's a lot of links in there which can actually expand upon this conversation and if you're interested in, in his reefs you can go and see images of those in his uh, in his v walls and his pools and you can see exactly the shape of the pools and um, there's all kinds of photographs and links deeply embedded in our website so i just want to thank greg so much because it was a really insightful conversation and hopefully we can get him back on in the future to go over a couple of those areas of his life which are are really fascinating i'd love to dig into the into the kelly slater patent thing and and yeah just there's so many different um areas which are fascinating and i'm i'm insanely curious about i don't know if you are but anyway once again thanks so much for listening i really appreciate it and uh, if you like this podcast please find a place to subscribe and drop a review. We'd really appreciate it. We really do. And like, as always, if you if you want to know anything about wave pools, Brian and I have collected a ton of information about wave pools, and we can definitely point you in the right direction if you're getting started on a wave pool project. So thanks again. See you next week. Wave lag. For your curiosity and stoke.